Welcome back to LPD Cast. I'm your host, Eloy Garcia, and you're in for a treat today. Our guest is Dr. Richmond Hill, the Associate Vice President for Student Support Services at Northern Virginia Community College. Dr. Hill's career in education spans more than 21 years with experience in K-12 and higher education. He is a service leader who's dedicated to community building and supporting children, youth, and adults persevere through education to attain their goals and fulfill their aspirations. When I think of the ideal person to fill the role of Associate Vice President for Student Support Services, I absolutely think of Dr. Hill. His wealth of knowledge and wisdom are a result of his hard work and dedication to excellence. Throughout his career, Dr. Hill has served as a community relations coordinator, a professor, a coordinator and supervisor for student success, a professional counselor for children, youth, and adults, and many other influential and important roles. He's the founder, mentor, and program leader for Man Up, a minority male initiative that supports black and brown men attain their academic goals at Northern Virginia Community College. He's been a consultant for the U.S. Department of Education, the U.S. Department of Justice, and Child and Family Services for the Arlington County Government in Virginia. Currently, he's also a consultant for the D.C. Public Charter School Board in Washington, D.C., and an educational consultant for the Browns Leadership Consulting in Virginia. You can learn more about his work in education by reading his publications titled Teachers as Changemakers in Bullying Prevention, published in 2020, and The Community College Experience of Black Male Achievers, Participation in Black Male Initiatives, also published in 2020. Today, Dr. Hill joins the LPD cast family to talk about the essence of service leadership, the importance of community building, and our ability to persevere through education and live a fulfilling life. Suffice to say, we are fortunate and grateful to have Dr. Hill as a guest on LPD cast. Welcome, Dr. Hill. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Eloy. Thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here and have time to talk with you today. Absolutely. To begin, can you talk to us about your role at Northern Virginia Community College? Sure. My role here as Associate Vice President for Student Support Services, I'm fortunate to be able to lead some very dynamic departments here. The Office of Title IX, the Office of Financial Stability and Advocacy, the Office of Wellness and Mental Health, as well as our Accommodations and Accessibility Office, which supports students with disabilities. We also have a great expectations program here, and it supports students who grew up in foster care, and it provides supports to them while they're here and in college. And we also have a C Campus grant program that assists our student parents. C Campus is an acronym that stands for Child Care Assistance Means Parents in School. And so uh, we provide child care vouchers and some other basic needs supports to our student parents here on campus. That's really wonderful. And can you talk to us about your personal educational journey? What led you to attaining an EDD in higher education administration? Interestingly enough, growing up, my path was to become a meteorologist. So from a kid, I wanted to, it was all about the weather. I actually went to undergraduate school and majored in meteorology and broadcast journalism. So that was it for me. Um, Probably about midway through that, I had a summer job as a camp counselor. And as this camp counselor, you know, I'll never forget towards the end of my sophomore year, this lady, you know, she was like, you know, we're 
looking for people, young men, particularly men of color, to work with our at-risk students in this camp. And I was like, sure, you know, I needed a summer job, you know, was close to home, all of that good stuff. So I jumped right on the opportunity, was grateful for the opportunity and got to work, you know, at the summer camp. And it was just really pivotal for me. It was a life changer. So after that, you know, I have this discussion with my parents at the end of the summer thinking, you know, mom, dad, I think I want to change my major to like psychology or education or something that can allow me to eventually work as a counselor with kids. And so had never really considered counseling or education. My mom's a teacher, dad's a social worker. They're now both retired, of course. But so I watched their career progression and kind of how they moved and functioned. And that really wasn't the path I thought I was going to take. And so I remember coming back my junior year, mind you, uh, in undergraduate thinking, you know, having conversations with my advisor about completely changing my major. And I mean, she basically told me, you know, well, first I had several people ask me, are you sure? Are you sure? You know, and people in my family, because I've been talking about the weather since five or six years old. And I was like, yeah, this is it. So um, changed majors, finished with an undergraduate in psychology and human development, and then worked for a year for a, not, a nonprofit program called Communities in Schools. And it was in Wake County, North Carolina. Um, and that program connected the community, really brought the community to some, you know, high risk schools in the in, in the city. And I was working in volunteer coordination and community relations then. So that was really exciting. I learned a lot in that brief about a year and a half period and then had the opportunity to go back to North Carolina State University and pursue a master's degree in counselor education, because by that time I had made up my mind that I wanted to be a school counselor. And so went there, um, completed the master's in school counseling and, you know, had an internship at a middle school that was quite life changing. So I knew then I wanted to be a middle school counselor. And that's exactly what I did outside out, out of graduate school and moved up here to Northern Virginia and worked as a counselor, as a counselor director, shifted over to have experience in counseling at the community college, actually right here at Northern Virginia Community College. Yeah, worked in high school outreach, first year programs, orientation, then became a coordinator of student success for a moment was an acting dean of students. Just a rich experience there and never saw myself in higher ed. Always thought it was going to be K-12 and then had such a wonderful experience in higher ed. You know, I made up my mind then that, you know, I was going to pursue further my education and uh, always had a mentor and mentors, you know, in my ear pursue that doctorate, go after it, go after it, you can do it, we see it, Dr. Hill. And I'm like, okay, here we are. So, you know, after working back in K-12 for a little bit, you know, decided to, you know, pursue higher ed administration. And now I'm here actually in it in Northern, at Northern Virginia Community College and really enjoying it. I, I foresee me spending the remainder of my, you know, career or working life in higher ed in some capacity. So that's kind of how I landed here into higher ed. That's really wonderful. And you shared your resume with me and in reviewing it, it really looks like a path from where you started, obviously, to where you are, but one that's really preparing you for your role in support services, because you have a wealth of knowledge in working with kids, working with youth and working with adults. I really think that you're the perfect person for this role. You mentioned a mentor or mentors along the way that fed your motivation for a doctorate. I have a friend and a mentor, Dr. Anita, who lovingly calls me Professor Garcia because I'm on the path to the professoriate. So I want to ask you, 
what did that do for you? Having your support system and your mentors feed this motivation that was further ahead than you were right in your career, but still motivating you to continue your higher education journey? Right. Great question. Um, I am a staunch advocate of mentoring and, you know, one of my mentors um, who I'll speak about in just a moment, Dr. Hill, no relationship, but just having the same last name. When we were in undergraduate school and in our multidisciplinary studies class, we had to learn and kind of dissect African quotes. And one of them was each one, reach one, teach one. Very simple, however, quite profound. And, And she was really big on us reaching back, giving back and helping, right? And she would never end her relationships after her students finished undergraduate school, right? I mean, still to this day, she's in touch with probably 90% of us that came through her program. I still talk to her. She came to my dissertation defense. You know, I still go to her for many mentoring conversations, professional decisions, et cetera. There is power in that connection from mentor to mentee. And it can be, it can go from informal to very formal. You know, it can go from talking every day to just a mentor or mentee that interacts, you know, once every six months. But I think for me, it was somebody outside of my immediate family, your immediate family, you know, they love you, you know, they're going to support you, but somebody outside of my immediate family saying, this is what you can do. This is what you're destined for. This is what you have, the skills, knowledge, ability, you know, characteristics, personality traits to accomplish, to do. And when that is reinforced and that person is helping you navigate a life a road, let's just say that they've pretty much already traveled, there's power in that. And I think it helps you avoid some pitfalls. It helps you learn things before you have to learn them the hard way. You know, um, navigating higher ed and like early professional career is not necessarily easy. And it takes, you know, that connection. And I think as people of color, we thrive off of connection. We thrive off of village. We thrive off of family. And so um, for me, it was those mentors. And and case in point, shout out to Dr. Steffens, one of my mentors and former supervisors. When I was in K-12, she was my school principal when I was a counseling director. And she used to ask me a couple times a year, Mr. Hill at the time, when are you going to start that doctorate program? And, and to be honest, at that time, I'd never considered, you know, I didn't even think it was necessary. You know, I, that's not where my head was. And, you know, I would say, oh, you know, at some point I'll get to it, Dr. Stephens, you know, I'll get to it. And she would ask me, Mr. Hill, when are you going to start that doctorate program? You need to get started. You need to investigate it now. What are you waiting on? And to be very honest, it got to a point where I'll never forget. I said, you know what? I need to go ahead and investigate this and do something. So the next time she asked me, <laughs> I can have a different answer. <laughs> and literally, that's how I went to an informational session where I ended up attending you know, graduate school and everything kind of fell into place. And then the next time she asked me, I was able to say, Dr. Steppens, you know, I'm, I'm starting a program. And she was like, yes, you know, I've been waiting. She's like, you know, I saw so much in you, you know, and so... That push is important uh, and it comes in various forms. You know, sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's overt like that, but uh, there's power in that connection. And so um, I know that's what got me to this point and continues to propel me, you know, because I like to stay in touch with those mentors. So. 
Thank you. And what is your philosophy on leadership? And how do you live out that philosophy? Well, so much of my leadership is born out of or based upon inspiration. I find that my goal as a leader is, you know, if I have the opportunity to build the team or if I'm stepping into a team that's already been built, I find my first goal is to inspire those people to believe in themselves, to help them if they haven't already identified what their, you know, strong suits are, their their skills, their abilities. And if they have, you know, beyond identification, kind of fine tuning those and giving them opportunities to further develop those. Um, But inspiration is important. And I tell all of my team members in the past and now when I meet them, and I know when people hear this, it takes them a while to digest, you know, I always say you're more important than the position. You as a person are much more important than the position. And, you know, people are looking at me like, wait a minute, but this work is important. Absolutely. The work is important. But guess what? The work can't get done in a powerful way, in an effective way, if you aren't at your best, if you aren't happy, if you aren't motivated, if you aren't inspired, if you aren't tapping into those skills and those abilities and those characteristics and those personality traits that you have. And so I am a servant leader, and I know that probably sounds very cliche, but I think that it's important for me to learn as much as possible at all levels of organizations and teams that I'm leading. It's important for me to be able to work alongside. It's also important for me me to be able to provide that strategic leadership at other levels. But I think that serving as well as leading is important. There's nothing that you should ask your team to do or or your units to do that you aren't willing to do. And if you don't know how to do it, you should be willing to learn how to do it. Because it's very eye-opening when you walk a mile in the shoes of others, people on your team as a leader. And I believe in going back to the person or the employee or the team member being more important than the position, I like to try to have my folks take care of themselves. Self-care is important. These jobs in education and higher education, serving other human beings can be quite stressful at times. It can be quite taxing. It can be quite frustrating, to be honest, at times. Sometimes it feels like the target is always moving. So I think it's very important to promote self-care and to promote people taking care of themselves in in, in healthy ways. You know, I tell my team and, and we laugh about it. And that's another thing I say, you know, shortly after they're coming on or when I'm meeting them, hey, guess what? On those days that you wake up, and you don't feel like coming to work, you don't have to think of an excuse for me, right? <laughs> you just you, you just pick up the phone or text me and say, hey, Dr. Hill, you know what? I think I'm going to take leave today because I just need some time or I'd like to spend some time with my family or I need just a day away from work. Like, I, I don't ever want to set up an atmosphere where people feel like they can't take that downtime, where they feel like they can't step away and rejuvenate or reinvigorate in whatever way they need to. Dr. Hill, you said so much that I love so much and that is so important. And I want to expand a little bit more on this concept of self-care and then days off of work. I think for a long time, there was this running joke of what you mentioned of making up bad excuses to get out of a shift from work. And there's so much in the psychology and communication of that, that we really have unpacked over the last several years. Because what would happen when we'd 
lie to get that time off is then we create an environment where we feel guilty and now we've done something that isn't right. We're lying, right? And then we're lying to someone at work, our boss. And we know that that's going to make the relationship weird. And if I think your employer has the ability to do that, right? If you have an environment, I think in higher ed, we're also kind of privy to those really new social uh, intricacies that allow us to, you know, engage in this stuff. Someone that's working production, like I used to in aerospace production, I don't get to just have a mental health day, right? When we're doing something like that. So all of that to say that I think in higher ed, we also get to test and experiment these new social um, adaptations. Dr. Hill, what skill do you value most in a leader? Transparency. I think it's important for leaders to admit when they're wrong, to share some of the thoughts and things that have been considered or that are being considered when decisions have been made or are about to be made, to be able to have conversations with team members about what's what's great, what's not so great, that transparency piece is important. And there are times as leader, when as a leader, when some things have been handed even down to you, right? With no opportunity to provide input or to weigh in. And then you're tasked with sharing that with your team and, and implementing some things. And so it's a fine line, right? Because you always want to respect leadership, uh, your leadership, at the same time wanting to be as transparent as you possibly can and as positive as you possibly can with your team members. So I think transparency goes a long way. Um, I think when team members feel that you're you're phony or you're not being transparent and hiding something, it kind of sets up this culture of maybe disbelief or, you know, not being able to trust or kind of, you know, seeing what's around the corner, that kind of thing. And so transparency is huge for me. I try to be as transparent as possible with my teams. And I value that probably most in a leader. And that's a hard question because I think there are like three things that probably kind of are equal with, you know, with transparency. Uh, But I'll go with transparency because I think those other things kind of come with being transparent. And please share them with us. Well, yeah, you know, I, I think at the same time, you want to be transparent you also wanna be as competent as you possibly can and knowledgeable as you possibly can about what is going on on your team in your areas that you lead and supervise. Case in point, I am no longer in a student facing position. I'm no longer in a day-to-day type of interacting with students, students in and out of my office. I find value in having ongoing conversations with people on my teams who are still doing that work, right? And also value in going to, you know, our vice president was really keen on us actually going out. We're we're a multi-campus community college. So going out to the campuses and going to the student services centers and being in the student union and in the student life areas, attending events and things on campus, being able to go and sit with our folks on campus and kind of see what they do and learn more about that. And so I think, you know, being knowledgeable about what's happening from the boots on the ground, student-facing right on up through, you know, what's happening in President's Council. I think that's another thing right along with transparency that's very, very, you know, important. And I think the other piece too is just someone in leadership that is keen enough to not only understand 
the different styles that people bring or work styles that people bring, you know, to work and, and learning styles and things of that nature. And so everybody's personality is different. So all of my direct reports, they're all very different. You know, some people want communication in short snippets. Some people want me to pick up the phone and let's have a conversation. Some people want bullets. Some people, when they're upset, they want to talk about it right then. Some people would like to wait for a day or two, you know, and just kind of learning those things and knowing that as a leader, you have to pivot sometimes, you have to pump the brakes, you have to hit the accelerator, um, but it's about supporting your staff, you know, and, and making sure that they feel supported. Thank you. I think a lot of what you shared is rooted in relationship competency and relationship maintenance. So is that like a natural thing that you've adapted throughout your career of being in the public sector and maybe even the private sector? Or like, did you take communication classes and where did this relationship competency come from? Wow, excellent question. So you, you just got me kind of diving in a bit. Um, part of it was modeled for me by other good leaders and as well as my parents. So to be as brief as possible, um, my mother especially always emphasized building good, strong relationships and maintaining them and treating everyone as equal. So, you know, some of her strong, she was a teacher, some of her strongest relationships uh, she had, they were at work. And they, you know, those relationships continued even after she retired. I also saw my mentor, Dr. Hill, you know, at the university that I attended for undergrad, she knew a lot of people and she groomed those relationships and, and she kept them, what I call, she kept them warm, right? She didn't let them grow cold. So one of the things I learned from her is, is this, I would, this is back in the day, so I'm dating myself, but I would collect business cards and I would have a whole stack of them and periodically about once a year or sometimes even six months and typically around the holiday season, I would go through them and email or call those people just saying, hi, you know, we met at this event or this function, just touching base with you, seeing how you're doing. If there's anything I can do to partner with you, collaborate, let me know, right? Just kind of keeping that relationship warm. That kind of parlaying into, I think, at, at work and in my experiences as a leader, I tend to develop when as appropriate very strong relationships with the people that are on my team. My previous assistant, you know, we no longer work together, but we talk probably once every two weeks. We still have lunch together, you know, those things. Interestingly enough about my career, so my career over 21 years has been between two organizations here in Northern Virginia, excuse me, Northern Virginia Community College and Prince William County Public Schools, right? So the public school district and the community college. So I start in the public school district I'm working there for, for a couple of years. I go to North Virginia Community College, work there for a couple of years, go back to the school district at the central office, stay there for a few years. Now I'm back at Nova. One of the things that I think allowed me to make those transitions as smoothly as possible was the power of relationships and building strong relationships, not burning any bridges, which allowed me to come back to open arms, right? Yeah. And so when I came, as I moved back and forth, I literally, even when I came back here in July, I knew which departments to call. I had friends and former coworkers and colleagues that I could call and, you know, 
get caught up to speed on things. They would direct me in this area. They, you know, offered their assistance. I, and that helps as you're learning a new organization, right? Or as you're entering into a new position. So the relationship piece, some of it I think is nature. And a lot of it was modeled for me by good leaders and how they always say the adage, you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Um, mm. And when you demonstrate <laughs> that yeah. for the people that you lead, then people are willing to, do things for the good of the organization and to support you and to support the work that you're doing. That's really wonderful. I agree. Thank you for sharing the importance of maintaining relationships and directly giving us that example of, look, I spent like my career at these two places and was able to go back and forth seamlessly because of your character and because of how you behaved at work. Right. You know, just a good exercise for all leaders, uh, a good thing for all leaders to do. And, and many do this. So this is not anything novel. But when I started this position, I had my assistant send out a, a, a brief Google form to all of my direct reports. And it was favorite color, favorite candy, what you like to do, but don't get to do enough of birthday, special dates, etc. And, you know, I had her put those on my calendar. And so every birthday, it's Here's a card and we do like a little, you know, $10 gift card to Starbucks. And as small and as simple and as low cost as all of that is, it really means a lot, you know, and, and people would respond back. Wow. Like, thank you so much, you know, and that's just a small step we can take to find out what makes our team members click, what's important to them. You know, and so when you know that's important to them, you know, I case in point, one of my team members just left and I know her children and their activities are super important. And her son is about to be an Olympic track star. You know, he's really doing very, very well. And so I I recall Friday when she said she was going to a track meet her and her husband. I, I just clicked. It clicked right in. Right. And I said, next week, I am going to ask her about her son's track meet and how he did. So she told me how he did and you know what place he came in and those events. And instantly her whole demeanor just lifted. Right. Because that's what's important to her. Yes, this work is important, but that's important to her, too. And being able to experience those things with her family allows her to then come and be a member of the team and be happy and be a contributor and know that we care as well. That's wonderful. Congratulations to their family as well for all of the success they're having in track. We're yeah, rooting for them. Doing very well. yeah. Dr. Hill, what have you learned about yourself through your work in student support services? So much. Um, so I have learned that decisions that are made that impact, well, every decision we make typically impacts someone else as well. As a leader, when you're, you're charged with making some strategic moves and shifts for an organization, it is so important for leaders, regardless of level and you know how many levels are beneath or above, to have conversations with all stakeholders as those big decisions are being made. Granted, there's some decisions that we just have to make in the moment, make very quickly, time is of the essence. But when we're talking about changing, when we're talking about a reorganization of a unit, when we're talking about restructuring an office, when we're talking about adopting a different procedure or implementing a new program, et cetera, sometimes in our, um, I guess, maybe our zeal to about the program or the 
the new project and we want to move quickly and get it done and we're excited, but we fail to have conversations with everyone that can provide some very valuable input. And I must admit, I've seen large decisions be made and the greeter at the receptionist desk wasn't consulted and it was a student facing type of you know, you know, decision that was gonna impact you know, students and the services we provide to students, or there was a particular administrative assistant you know, who has a lot of institutional knowledge and interfaces with a lot of students in that arena that wasn't consulted, or there was somebody in grounds and facilities that you know, wasn't consulted. And we're talking about now having students come another way into another building and access another office. You know what I'm saying? So it hinges on so many things and so many people. And I've talked to leaders before you know, who said, oh, well, you know, the decision is the, is the decision. I'm still gonna do what I need to do. You know? So it really doesn't, it doesn't matter. And I'm like, well, it does matter. And sometimes while we might not have the luxury of having people weighing in on the blueprint, right? We do have the luxury, and I think it is important that we allow people to at least share with us what color the walls should be, right? Or what the window treatment looks like, or if it's a 10-foot ceiling versus an eight-foot ceiling, you know? And do you see what I'm saying, where I'm going? And so I just think that I've learned that leadership is that, you know, sometimes, yes, as a leader, you have to say, this is the direction we need to go. Um, I'm very sure of that. And that's fine. But that input from all your stakeholders is super important, whether you need to move quickly or whether you have the luxury of moving a little more slowly. I think the other piece for me in leadership is understanding that you need other people and you can't do it all yourself. And no matter how long you've been a leader, no matter how long you've been doing the work you do, there is something that you learn every day. Mm-hmm. And you better be open to learning. it. Just yesterday, one of my team members, one of my direct reports, she, she called me on something that I had. It was, it was wrong, you know? And right. I said, wow, you're right. Like, thank you. And I could tell she initially she was a little reluctant to maybe say it. But I, I tried to like thank her like three or four different times because I'm <laughs> yeah. like, this is good. You could have allowed me to continue to go in the wrong direction, but yeah. you slowed me down and corrected me. And there is something I can learn from you and everybody I work with, you know? And so never always understanding that we should be ever learning and open to learning as well as open to being corrected when necessary. Now, you have a great deal of experience working with students of all ages, and among the many roles you've held, you've been a coordinator for student success, the director of school counseling, and you've worked with youth and adults in education. So what advice do you have for adults returning to higher education regarding how to adapt and be successful? Right. The start is what stops most people, right? Um, You know, (laughs) and, and so... First of all, I tell, I used to, I remember as a counselor, you know, on a campus and having a student who might be 50, 55, 60 come to my office and they're kind of worried about the start, you know, and then we get them beyond the start. And then I think it's getting beyond the start and understanding that if you've not been in a classroom for a long time, yes, things have changed, right? 
modes of learning, methods of learning, technology is a, is a major factor, you know, as to how classrooms and how learning has changed. But there are so many resources on campuses, community college, four-year universities, or profit schools that are there to support students of all ages. And I think sometimes, and I could be wrong, but just from my conversations, older students sometimes feel like, well, I'm an adult. I should know this. You know, I've been working for 20 years. I should know how to navigate this process, this procedure. And it can be a little intimidating, you know, at times, which I think should cause us as higher ed administrators to sometimes look at our processes and our procedures and what we have students go through to become a student or to access a course, et cetera. Because if an adult who's been in the world of work for 20 years is having difficulty navigating that or it's not clear, then we might want to look at that and, and make some adjustments, right? Because we want to be, especially as a community college, we want to be, you know, open access and friendly and, you know, promote that ease of navigation. So I think getting beyond the start, leaning on resources. And one of the things one of my provosts used to say at orientation years ago, he used to tell all the students, you know, if you fail here, it's because you chose to. Because I promise you, if you, and he would always close orientation, he said, think about all of the people in the departments that you've met today. If you use those departments and offices and those people for what they're here for and how they said they can be of assistance, you will be fine and you'll make it and you'll reach your goal. If you don't seek them for the assistance, if you don't go to them for the help that you need and try to do it on your own, then you possibly can fail, right? That's why we're here. And so I just encourage all students, regardless of the age, don't be afraid to ask questions. Don't be afraid to say, I don't know. I'm not aware. I'm not sure. It's okay. And especially first-gen students, some of the benefit that students have whose parents have gone to college is at home, you've got somebody reinforcing what was said at orientation. You've got somebody saying, oh, well, if you're having this issue, you could you should go to the financial aid office. You should go to the ombudsman. You should go to the student center. You should go because they have that frame of reference, right? Or that point of reference. And for a first gen student who may not have that, even more so lean on resources there. We are here as student services, student affairs professionals to support the student so that they reach their ultimate goal certificate, associates, work, whatever that looks like, transfer. And if that wasn't necessary, we wouldn't be here, right? We wouldn't have jobs. And so it is necessary. And providing students with that navigational capital and access to resources and those linkages to the right people, that's what makes the difference. And that's what allows students, I think, you know, by and large to be successful. So prior to recording, we were having a conversation about the transition from undergrad to graduate school. So what advice do you have for students that have completed their undergraduate program and are unsure about graduate school, if it's for them, or if they should jump right into a program right after undergrad? I think kind of going back to our conversation, the first thing is to be in touch with yourself, you know, have a pulse on how you're feeling right? Any educational undertaking is huge. And it's a, it's, it's a major commitment, whether you're part-time, full-time, it doesn't matter. It takes a lot. 
And so I think some students finish undergraduate school and are kind of, you know, already poised to let's keep going, let's do this. And, and, and sometimes that's due to the fact that there's this tangible goal they have that they know they need the master's degree for, and they're so ready for it. And they know it for a matter of, you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt and boom, let's go. Right. And then there are other students who have finished undergraduate school and know that they need a break, know that they need some time. And that time may be for various things. It may be to mature. It may be to decompress from four years or five years or six years of undergraduate study. It may be to support family, you know, in such a way. It may be to strategize, how am I going to access graduate school and maintain a full-time job and, you know, raise children, things of that nature. So I think first and foremost, being aware, I should say, of where you are, you know, and, and what you're able to take on. Like I was sharing with you years and years ago, it was the whole thing of, you know, complete undergraduate school, go and get some experience, work, grow up, fine tune your goals and aspirations and make sure that like this is what you really want to do before you embark upon, you know, graduate study. Um, You know, nowadays, I think it's a little different. You know, there's this promotion of five year programs, five and a half year programs, get your bachelor's and your master's at the same time in one fell swoop. And, And I'm not here to say, you know, whether one way or the other, it's right or wrong. I just think it's the student knowing kind of where they are. As as I shared with you, graduate studies, in my opinion, and some listeners may wholeheartedly disagree. For me, I found it to be easier to remain engaged and connected and motivated. The work we did in graduate school, the things we read, the research we digested, all of that was so pertinent to my professional and my career goals and to what I was passionate about. It was work, but it didn't feel like drudgery, right? In undergraduate school, you learn a lot about a lot of different things. Uh, You're kind of coming of age, growing, developing, figuring things out, learning yourself, learning how to become a student, right? Because that's really your first time that you're learning how to become a student. Let's be honest, I'm not sure that most of us learn that in K-12, right, or in high school. And so, you know, you've learned how to become a student and you've now come into an arena where you're focused on very specific course content and things of that nature. Um, You have choice many times in what you research and what you write, uh, how you approach a project, things of that nature, which can be, you know, very much different from undergraduate studies. And so, Hopefully that is encouraging to people to know that, and and let's let's be honest, we're talking anywhere from 40 to 60 credits as opposed to 120, 118 credit hours. So it can be a shorter time period as well. So I think knowing where you are, knowing what you're ready to take on, knowing that it's a different type of work. And I feel like I, I encourage people if they're ever reticent about graduate school and they come back and typically say, you're right. You're like, it's fun. You know, I mean, it's, it's better. It's focused, you know, uh, it's not random at all. You know, it's very much about what I want to do and who I want to become. And I think professors who teach graduate courses actually deliver the course a little different, you know, very much a exploratory manner, very much a project-based type of, you know, manner, um, not just kind of disseminating information and, you know, you absorbing it and being told how to regurgitate it, you know? So I think it's, it's very different. And so I encourage people go for it when you're ready and it's probably going to 
totally blow your mind uh, as to how different it is. Thank you for sharing that. And that's my major curiosity is, is it different enough? I was talking with my partner. I said, I don't know if grads, as a first-gen student, I don't know if grad school is different enough from undergrad for me to have, first of all, like six months be a long enough break to feel reinvigorated, to dive back in. But also if it's different enough from undergrad to feel different and that way I engage differently. So I'm in this space of, do I take some time between these programs? Because I'm really kind of split half and half, but I'm kind of exhausted. So I'm leaning more so towards take some time off, but I love being a student so much and just increasing uh, my knowledge. So that kind of pulls me back and just says, you know, no time like the present. I also kind of live by that with that motto. So this right. helps though, this helps. Well, I, I can tell you what I did and you may consider, and I'm sure colleges and universities, you know, still do it. I took a course as I was considering going back, I took a course as a non-degree seeking student, right? Uh, and so, you know, taking a course in the discipline, um, but not formally being accepted to the program or, you know, as a, you know, full-fledged graduate student, but you're taking a graduate level course as a non-degree seeking student. And so the requirements to be able to take that course, much less, very different, and that's really your time to explore and to see, wow, okay, like, yeah, yeah, I'm ready or no, maybe not, <laughs> you know, so <laughs> you maybe look at the, uh, and, and if at all possible, if you kind of zeroed in right now on a particular institution where you're looking at, you know, doing your graduate studies, mm-hmm. that course potentially, if it's a part of your program, could be applied to, you know, your later study and not be a complete waste. Well, I don't think any learning is ever wasted, but you know, and not be applied, I should say, to your program. So maybe looking at things from a non-degree seeking student perspective for right now, as you're figuring things out. That's another tool. Thank you so much for sharing that tool with us. I didn't even know that was an option. Yeah, I did it. And it was, it was, it was great, you know, and again, granted, this has been (laughs) years ago, but you, I mean, definitely look into it, you know, because it's an awesome opportunity. And it's an opportunity too to kind of get a feel for the institution. If that's not your current undergraduate institution and you're looking at another institution for graduate study, that graduate study or graduate program fit, in my opinion, is just as important, if not more important, than that whole undergraduate study, you know, fit. It's beyond the classroom, it's the institution, it's the resources, it's the support, it's the department, the program, right? As you've shared with us, you've been working in education for a long time. So I'd like to ask you about the pandemic and how that changed your environment. How did you overcome the challenge of meeting the expectations of your role while working remotely or adapting to the pandemic? Right. At the beginning of the pandemic, I will forever remember that time as working harder than I've probably ever worked in my entire life. Wow. Albeit from home. Um, you know, during the onset of the pandemic, I was still in K-12 and I was still supervising student support services, counseling, et cetera. And um, K-12 institutions at that time, by and large, were not ready to shift instantly into remote learning or virtual learning, right? Unlike most colleges and universities, uh, you know, who are or who were. So we had to shift quickly and pivot from being this, you know, student registration in person, these programs in person, attending school, like everything in person, right, to shifting everything to be online. So I think I learned that 
we could create processes, procedures, implement things quicker than I thought we could, which let me know all of those years prior to that it would take six to eight months for us to move the needle. It didn't necessarily need to take that long, but it did, right? I think I learned that we're always seeking engagement in education, whether it be parent engagement or student engagement. We're always seeking this connection and this engagement from the student support services or the student affairs side of the house. And so virtual Zoom, let's just be clear, it removed a lot of barriers, right? So we found parents and guardians, especially of Black and Brown underrepresented children, engage with the school district and with programs and services like never before, right? Because even if I'm at work and I only have a 30-minute break or I can't take off to come to this at the school or I can't take off to come in person and meet with this person or that person, or I'd love to take advantage of that program you're doing on, you know, preventing bullying, et cetera, but it's at a time when I'm working and if I take off, I'm not getting paid, but yet now you did it on Zoom and you recorded it and you cataloged it so I can go back and watch it when I get home or I can watch pieces of it throughout the week during my breaks at work. So there was a, an opportunity to engage and connect with parents, especially low-income parents and, and, and people who might have not felt even as comfortable with coming into the physical structure, right, right. Um, to connect, engage, and get information. So that was, that was really, really key. I think what the pandemic also did was shine a spotlight on inequity, mm-hmm. to shine a spotlight on the lack of basic needs that are being met outside of what we do. And I think that was huge, right? And so for me and my work, it helped, you know, my former supervisor, literally, we had these equity guidelines, right? equity decision-making guidelines that literally were printed on a piece of paper, that when we were making decisions about programs, procedures, when we were revising everything for the pandemic, questions, you know, are there any groups of people that might be left out or not able to access what you're doing and designing because of how you're designing it? And if so, you need to rethink it, right? And so I think from an equity lens, it allowed us to step back and really look at what we had been doing. And we really saw a lot of gaps. And, and I think it's important as, as, as leaders during the pandemic, when you are looking at, I mean, because it's really easy for everybody to say, okay, let's do virtual, right? And we think everybody has Wi-Fi and they have phones, but they don't, or it's not adequate, right? So you can't just do that. You've got to then provide the access. And so even now, you know, with all the virtual learning that has to take place, we have, and through our student parent program, we have a a laptop learner program. And then, you know, through a grant, we'll be providing, I think they're called MyFi's, a little like hot spot, okay, right? That the spotlight has kind of really been shining a light on what people don't have and what students don't have to really be successful in remote learning and you know, engaging remotely. And so um, just, I think that I learned about myself. There's a lot of things that I didn't know people were experiencing. 
until we got into the pandemic and the cover was pulled and the light started shining. I agree. You know, we really learned a lot through the pandemic and had this Wizard of Oz moment where we see behind the curtain, right? And I think also in our workplaces, we realized that things could have been functioning differently all of this time, like you were saying, as it pertains to the relationship with children, their parents, and the family's relationship with education. I'm hoping that everything that we've learned through the pandemic is really motivating all institutions, K through 12 and higher ed, to adapt in ways that we haven't been asked to before. But now that we know, we can't, you know, turn a blind eye. And I think that improvements have been made. I see them locally, but I feel like there's always something that we can do because there's always community that might just be just a bit out of reach from our own personal experience. So there's that process of educating ourselves and then of implementing, which can take time, but is absolutely necessary. Right, yeah. One of the things too, while I shared the good that came out of the pandemic, I wanna be clear in that from a K-12 perspective and even in higher ed as well, it's presented a number of challenges, right? For the well-being of students. In any setting from a mental health perspective, from a student support services perspective, when a staff member, a faculty member, a mental health practitioner can actually lay eyes on a student, right, and see how they come in the door and see the tears or see the frustration or see those things or or see the fact that there's not a coat on and it's 30 degrees outside or something like that. There's something to be said for being able to see that and address it and remedy it, right? You and I both know school especially in the K-12 setting, is a refuge for many students. That's the most peaceful place they'll ever be. Um, It's cool when it needs to be cool. It's warm when it needs to be warm. There's food when there needs to be. There's care, there's comfort, things of that nature, right? For the most part, for most students. And so when students now are at home and many of them having to be unsupervised because parents have to work and, and leave and then there's other, you know, children in the home, you know, a lot has been lost. So I also want to highlight that too. And that's why I look forward to the day when this COVID situation is much better and permits schools and school districts and and, and just people, period, to be back in physical spaces, because there's something to be said about that human in-person connection um, that is very difficult to ascertain virtually. Absolutely. Can you talk to us about the work you do with the youth in your community? Sure. So the work I do with the youth in my community primarily has been with Black and Hispanic boys age, let's see, like 11 to 14 or so. Most of my years working with the academy and with the mentoring program was with that age group. And that is some of the most inspirational and rewarding work I think any any person can do. Still to this day, I see former students, former young men that were in the program, uh, parents who see me and say, you know, if it hadn't been for the program, if it hadn't been for the confidence you all instilled in them, if it hadn't been for how you and the mentors really pushed them to be better, you check their grades, you talk to them about how they dress and present themselves. If it hadn't been for all that, my son wouldn't be where he is today. And so those stories help 
keep me going. And I'll be very honest with you, be very, have a very transparent moment. So I, when I started my doctoral program, shortly after I was in it, stepped away from the every Saturday and then sometimes during the week mentoring that I was doing through a particular program. And I said, you know, when I'm done, I'm going to get back to it full-fledged again, right? And after I finished my doctoral program, like you said, you were feeling earlier, I was a little burnout, you know, I was kind of like thinking I just needed to decompress, let me give myself some time. And it's interesting because it's amazing how things work in that just as I was coming up on that like year of being out of the program, I started running into former students and former parents of students, and they were talking about the impact, right? And then I started thinking about, you know what, Richmond, you still have something to offer and something to give. Like mankind didn't just stop after you stopped, right? There's yeah. <laughs> still young, there's still young black and brown boys coming through this world that need positive role models and need somebody to support them and show them the way. And so that's been kind of this impetus for me to get back involved in a way that, you know, I hadn't been for quite some time. And um, even with the mentoring program at the higher ed level, man up, they still are in touch with me and, and we still have those mentoring conversations. They'll call me about big decisions they're about to make or just life in general. And part of what I learned is this, it's not really like this magical potion that makes community work, working with youth, mentoring work. It's connection and it's consistency and it's being a person of your word. Like that's what they're looking for, right? Like show me the way, be consistent, be available, be transparent. You see what I'm saying? And so, and sometimes in that work that I've done, there have been times where I've thought, does this matter? Is it working? Is it impacting anyone? Are these students getting anything out of it? You know, sometimes we'd finish with a mentoring session or finish field trip or an excursion. Yeah. And I'd be driving home and I'd be like, I'm tired, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, it's just chaperoning, whatever. But did this work? Will this have an impact? You know, when we're talking to them about etiquette, when we're talking to them about networking, but they're, you know, they're still young, when we're talking to them about presenting themselves, right? Yeah. Where is it going? Is it sticking? Does it matter? And so to see it come full circle and see that it does matter, to see that it works and to, to hear from, you know, I think in the past year, about 20 to 24 of them that were in the program and they're like in graduate school, buying homes, investing, getting married, having kids in the military, wow. like running things, that's powerful. And a lot of people are doing this work, right? With young people and in the community. And I'm sure they can say the same thing. It's tough. It takes a lot of energy, but it's worth it. And it matters. You know, I tell people all the time, even if you can't admit, commit to being like a big brother, big sister or whatever, you know, which requires some ongoing, you know, consistent type work or whatever, if it's just showing up to a program, you know, for youth, right, and presenting on a topic or, you know, being able to share something or going to a career day and letting them see you as a black or brown person that is in this career. And like, yes, we are represented in this career. And if, if I can do it, you can do it too. You know, all of it 
the large and the small. You know, I even hate to put like degrees on it, but it all works and it all helps. As it pertains to your research, why did you choose the topics that you chose? I love the community college. I love the mission of the community college. I love what it stands for. I love the fact that anyone can come here and get a start and reach the goals that they need to reach. You know, we're not exclusive. We do our very best to remove as many barriers as possible to people accessing education and completing education. What I saw is that during my time as a counselor at a community college, I saw so many black and brown young men that were coming to class, coming to campus, but appear not to be connected and appear not to know where to go to get connected. And as a result, we saw it in the data. We saw it in the retention data. We saw it in the GPA data. We saw it in the completion data. And so me and the Dean of Students at one time had a discussion. He said, wait, I'm reviewing the data. What's going on with our black and brown young man on campus? I was like, absolutely, I am too. He's like, look, can you help me? I'm like, I sure can. You know, like if you... You give me just a little bit of money and some help, let's build this thing. And so I saw that we have a lot of black and brown male achievers in community colleges, right? And so they have what it takes. They came with what it takes. They need somebody to just show them the way and help them navigate things, right? And be that connection and to be that push. And so I wanted to like really take a look at beyond just what the quantitative data was showing us. So, you know, we could see the GPA of the Black males on campus. We could see the completion rates for Hispanic males and things like that. We could see all of that, right? And even though there were some deficits in certain areas, I also watched many of them walk across the stage and graduate and transfer and go to the military and start their own business and do all these things, right? And so, you know, we started the mentoring program and we saw that it was working when we looked at the numbers, I became more interested in what is it about their experiences in programs, the minority male initiative programs, the black male mentoring programs, the black and brave, et cetera, right? These success academies, these initiatives, what was it about this experience specifically that they felt contributed to their success as a student at the community college? You know, was it the programs? Was it the community service? Was it the trips? Was it the opportunity to meet faculty members through particular events and things of that nature? Like, what was it? Like, I wanted to understand what was your lived experience as a community college student, but not only as a community college student, as a Black and brown male, but in these programs or in this program, like, what was it? Because I feel like knowing what it was or what components or aspects of the program they found most beneficial or impactful, that shapes how we tweak the program down the road. Do we change our design? Do we put more emphasis in this particular aspect of the program? What we learn from them, what they share with us in their words and in their experiences, we then can step away and say, wow, we know this works and this is the why, right? There's something qualitative behind just the numbers. And then when we look at, you know, sharing that with leadership and we look at, you know, trying to develop or bolster or sustain that institutional commitment where 
leaders or, you know, institutions might be saying, well, you know, we know we have staff for these positions or success coaches and mentors for these black and brown young men. And, you know, yeah, we've seen some, you know, improvements and things of that nature, but why do we need to continue to do this? Right. You know, is it not, is it not just a one-time fix? Is it not just a, do you some say, why do we need right. to sustain this? Why should this be continue to be an institutional commitment? Right. And so what I find too, is that not only is it an opportunity for these young men to navigate through to successful completion. But when you look at their commitment to the institution, I can't tell you how many of them now are giving. I can't tell you how many of them now reach out to me and say, hey, like I've been telling you, Dr. Hill, like when are you having a program where I can come back and speak? Like, where's this so I can come and talk to these young men about like how I have these internship opportunities in my company. I want them to be able to write. You see what I'm saying? So their love for the institution now is like on a 10 because not only were they students, but they were truly engaged and they can see that they had a wraparound community there that made sure at every turn they had what they need to be successful. And so that really fueled my research interest to want to see like, what is it exactly? What will they say to me about their experience? That's really wonderful and so important. I agree. I was speaking with a coworker about pride and the pride that students feel in their institution and for their institution. And if I'm honest, speaking of moments of disclosure, (laughs) we were analyzing and talking about how we don't see our student body express a great deal of pride. We have wonderful athletics right before the pandemic. Our women's volleyball team won the national championship. So it's great. You know, we we're on the map, so to say, but we don't know who are kind of like the athletes, you know, they're not rocking their gear and we don't, and it's not even just athletics. That's the easiest one to pinpoint because they represent the university in a very overt way. But all of that to say is that we didn't have that piece that you're mentioning. The work that we put into and for the students has an outcome, right? Then they now feel like my foundation was helped or created by this institution. And without this institution, I wouldn't be where I am. So I have a great deal of love and respect. And then, yeah, you, you know, you do have those alumni relationships that matter so much. So thank you for sharing that piece. Dr. Hill, I want to ask you, what are you most proud of? I'm grateful that the talents and the gifts that I feel God instilled in me that I was just born with and that mentors and parents and family helped develop and groom that it went to something or those things went to something that was able to benefit someone else. I would not be where I am today without my parents, without mentors, without people who cared about me and who saw things in me that I didn't even see. And so I'll be very honest with you, proud. Um, it's hard for me to say I'm proud of it because sometimes I feel like when people hear proud, it has like a negative connotation, you know, kind of like you're, you're puffed up or whatever. But I am, I'm grateful and I'm proud of me being humble enough and for my mom and dad saying humility is important. And so I'm proud like of being that proud son, you listened and it is important. 
and you gave of yourself and you're giving of yourself and it has gone to help somebody. And when I hear back from the young men and students in, that were in the programs and in the community programs and the school programs that I worked with, and they say, Alpha Academy helped me so much. Man Up just changed my life. If it hadn't been for then this, I'm still in touch with all of the guys that I was in the program with. They know they can still call me. That's what I'm most proud of is the success that they've, ex they've experienced. And when me and other mentors and other staff members came together or my fraternity brothers, we came together and we gave our very best at the time, it resulted in even better for these young men. And I think that's at the end of the day, when I think about that, it makes me smile and it makes me proud to see their success and to see their success at such an early age. There's an opportunity now that I don't think existed for my generation. Case in point, one of my favorite mentees, <laughs> because we're very much alike, we share a birthday and everything, but he's probably 26, 25. He'll be graduating from Tuskegee shortly in, in May. And he's already received a job offer. He's accepted the offer. Wow. Um, he'll be, if I'm not mistaken, in a two to three year management training type situation at this new company. And at the end of those two or three years, whichever it is, guaranteed a management position. But before he's even graduating, had like five or six offers wow. and was able to select which one wow. and, you know, was not the highest GPA student, was not the National Honor Society and all of that, but just was consistent and took the resources he got and ran with them. And, you know, he shares with us, he was like, you all held the fire under me. You know, I knew I couldn't fail. I knew I had to keep moving. I knew I had to be successful. I, I had role models. I didn't want, you know, to, to get a call from you and you beating up on me because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do, you know? So, there's so much opportunity now to do so much at such a young age and to see that just really blows my mind. And I'm just so proud of them for just getting out into the world, the big bad world and accomplishing so much. Thank you so much. And congratulations to him. Very well-deserved. Yeah, I'm excited. I will definitely, um, you know, share with him what I've shared because I think it's important to, it's one thing to be proud of someone and to share it with someone else, it's even more powerful to share it with that person. Mm -hmm. um, because at the end of the day, encouragement, it pushes people to become even better, right? You know, right. It's, it's, it's this push and, and people need that. And um, you've got to build people, even in their success and accomplishment, you build them, right? Because then that's just a stepping stone to even greater success or accomplishment. Dr. Hill, what last words do you have for our listeners? Don't be discouraged when life becomes difficult or challenging or even feels like sometimes it's impossible. There will be times in your life where you feel like maybe you've hit rock bottom. Maybe you don't have the resources. You don't know where to turn. There is always a way and there's always an answer. And there's always somebody that is here on this earth that can help. And so 
I encourage people to be open and to avail themselves to be helped when they need to. And to know that even though we might get knocked down in life and we might stumble, we might make mistakes, it might take us a little longer to do something than it did somebody else. We are who we are, right? And if we keep moving and we keep pressing and we keep pushing, we can reach that goal. We can make it happen. We can become who we want to be. But it takes work. And when we look at the success of these great leaders and these people in our country, and you start digging into their autobiography or into their biography, I always get that wrong, but you start digging into their lives, let's just say that, and you start looking at what they've accomplished, how many books they've written. They may have put themselves through school. They may have raised children at the same time. They may have had a family member with an addiction and all this kind of stuff, right? And you're like, wow, but they were this. They were a poet laureate. They were this you know, nationally recognized teacher. They were this, you know, and you're like, how? And one of my favorite quotes is by Henry Wadsworth Longsfellow. And it says, heights by great men reached and kept were not obtained by sudden flight, but while their companions slept, they were toiling upward through the night. And what that means to me is that when you see the success of greats, right? Great people and leaders, they weren't sleeping. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I'm not saying they weren't taking care of taking care of themselves, but you know, that ought to push you like there's no time for, for, for sleeping if that's what you want to become and if that's what you want to do, right? You know, there's some long nights that we didn't see. There's some struggles we didn't see. And so especially our young people, when you look to, you know, the Will Smiths and the, all these other folks you know, and even the younger, you know, the Lizzo's, the everybody, right? The, the, the Cardi B's, like if you listen to their story, it's really successful right now. There's a lot of bling attached to it, a lot of success, you know, billions of dollars, millions of dollars. But they had some sleepless nights. They had some nights where they stayed up all night and they wrote or they planned or they implemented or they worked with the team or, you know, or they cried or they were frustrated. They thought it wasn't going to happen. So, you know, there's just a lot of possibility out here. It does take the work and you have to put the work in and you have to have a team around you of people that are pushing you and supporting you and reminding you, you can do it. And so just don't stop, you know, don't stop, keep moving. A lot of times when I'm congratulating people and I'll say, you know, I'm impressed, but I'm not surprised. Don't stop. Keep moving. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. And, and that's the thing. Cause I just think it's, it's very easy to get to a space where you're like, I've done this or like I've gotten to a level, right? What's next? You know? <laughs> yeah. Thank you so much. And I completely agree that we need to be aware of the untold story behind or under the story, right? Particularly now with someone like a Meg Thee Stallion that just graduated, I was processing what that communicates to our youth simultaneously having this popular career, this very successful rap career, but also having this education, right? And what that tells our youth about what you can accomplish while you've maybe to us seem like you've accomplished your dreams by being a star, you know, she also graduated and what that says about having both of those exist in our life. I was watching an, an interview between Issa Rae and Ava DuVernay and Issa said, you know, whenever I think about like stopping or not continuing to work. I just think Ava has 24 hours in a day and I have 24 hours in a day, you know, so what am I doing? But to answer to that, Ava said, you know, that's why I wake up early. 
in talking about the history of these very successful people, they wake up early. So they make most of their day, they elongate their day to be able to add in these extra meanings like yourself today, which I'm so grateful for you spending the time with us. So thank you, Dr. Hill. I appreciate you being here with us. I'm so grateful for all of the wonderful work that you do and for lending your voice to LPDCast. Well, my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. And I just wish you the very best and continue to do this good work and to spread such powerful messages of hope and encouragement and guidance to so many. So thank you so much. That was my conversation with Dr. Richmond Hill. I hope you found value in our platica and the information we shared with you. I encourage students to read Dr. Hill's publications via your college or university library. And for our non-student listeners, you can access his dissertation via ProQuest.com. That's P-R-O-Q-U-E-S-T.com. LPDCast is produced by me, your host, Eloy Garcia. To become a supporter and receive exclusive LPDCast merch, visit anchor.fm forward slash LPDCAST. Be sure to follow me on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at LPDCast, and you can email me at LPDCast at gmail.com. Until next time, thank you for listening.